Please open up your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. It's going to be our focus this morning, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, as we continue our series through the life of Christ, the chronological walk through the life of Christ, verse by verse, using all four of the Gospels. And today we find ourselves in um, the Gospel of Luke, verse 18. Now, as you're finding your way to um, that passage of Scripture, um, I ha- do have an illustration this morning, and, and this time it's not really for the kids as much. Time. I usually start the sermon with an illustration for the kids. This time it's for the adults. So here's a quiz. Ready? What do these three things have in common? Any guesses? Hmm. Hard to live without, hard to live without them. Right. And when they're gone, you know it, right? Okay, hard to live without them. No, that's not what I was aiming for, but yes. What? They're all nouns. Thank you, Anthony. No, no, they are objects. Yes. No, that's, that's not what I was going for at all. <laughs> Any other thoughts? No, it's MacGyver. I'm, maybe, but I don't know. No, it's lacking the duct tape, probably not. No, no, these are all things. Okay, wait, one more. Right. They are not normally things you find in a household, but all these, these three things, with countless other things, can be sources of great strife in a marriage. Okay? You see, we all come into marriage with different expectations, right? And so, one spouse's expectation is, when this thing is empty, you take it off of that little springy thing... And you throw it away, and you get one that has a bunch of paper still on it, and you put it on the little springy thing. Uh, Another person's expectation in marriage might be, when you use this tube of toothpaste, you squeeze it from the bottom up, and don't leave these big clumps all over the place, and by all means, don't leave this gunk around the front. Whereas the other person might be thinking, what's the big deal? You're just brushing your teeth. Who cares about gunk? It's going to be clean anyway in the end, right? Or some person might have the expectations when you load the dishwasher, you need to put the top of the silverware into the little basket because that's the way it's going to, amen, we got an amen out there. That's the way it's going to get cleaned, right? But the other person say, well, my mother taught me that you put it the opposite way in so that when you take it out and put it away, your fingers aren't touching the part we're all eating on, Right? Amen. There we go. We've got two different parties here. We have the the downward silverware types and the upward silverware types, all right? Now, the point is, as we all come into marriage with, with a variety of different expectations, a variety of different um, things that we either learn from our parents and things we expect from our spouse, right? Now, those are silly examples right there of expectations we bring into marriage. Now, I'm not saying that they don't, those don't cause some strife. They do. Uh, but there's other things, right, that are, that are a little bit more serious than that. We come into expectations into marriage regarding roles in the home. We have expectations regarding parenting and how children are going to be disciplined. We have expectations about how money is to be handled and, and many, many other things. Now, some of those expectations we come with are unrealistic expectations, uh, some of those expectations just aren't communicated very well. Okay? When I do premarital counseling, 
I usually try to touch, not on those that I just mentioned there, I really don't deal with toothpaste, but some of those other more important things like how are you going to discipline your children? Because it's amazing how many couples are excited about marriage and they never think about that. And when you sit them down and one person says one thing and the other one says another thing, you realize, ah, there you go. There's some expectations that aren't on the same page. So some of these aren't communicated well, some are unrealistic, and some are simply misplaced. We, we have misplaced expectations of one another, things we shouldn't have of one another. Misplaced expectations sometimes cause great harm and great strife in a marriage. Now, today we're not talking about marriage, but we are talking about misplaced expectations. We come to a text today where one of the greatest men who ever lived, matter of fact, According to Jesus, he's the greatest among those born to women. This great man falls into a season of disappointment, discontentment, doubt, and even despair. All because of misplaced expectations. So the passage we're looking at this morning again is Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. So please stand if you would as we read. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Because we are doing a a chronological walk through the life of Christ using all four Gospels, I'll let you know that the parallel passage of this is found in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. But we're going to focus this morning on Luke's version. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that you would just speak through your word. I pray that you would draw our hearts to you in a way that perhaps they haven't been drawn coming into the worship service this morning. And Lord, we pray that our minds would interpret your word rightly, so grant me the mouth to speak and grant all of us ears to hear. Lord, we want you to be honored. We want Jesus to be the focus of everything we do in this service, including the preaching of this passage of Scripture. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now we need to know that this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today uh, in Luke's Gospel, as well as Matthew's, is part of a larger structure um, that really spans all the way down to verse 35. Really, verses 18 through 35 are one unit, but it's broken up into three sections that are marked by three questions. The first section, which we're looking at today, focuses on John the Baptist's question for Jesus. Then verses 24 through 30 focus on Jesus' question about John the Baptist to the people. And then finally, verses 31 through 35 focus on Jesus' question for the Jewish people in general, about what it is that they're looking for. All of these passages are addressing expectations. John's expectation for the Messiah, the people's expectations for who John was to be, 
and the expectations that the Jewish people had in general regarding the kingdom, regarding the Messiah and his kingdom. So today we're going to focus on this first section on John here, and I want us to see three things about misplaced expectations from today's text. So we're going to get right into your notes, and here's your first point this morning. Misplaced expectations can breed disappointment and discontentment with the way God works. Misplaced expectations can, can breed disappointment and discontentment in our hearts with the way God is working, the way he has chosen to do things. Now, there's no doubt that the great John the Baptist is um, greatly discouraged in today's text. And it's understandable. You see, John the Baptist has been sitting in a dungeon for about one and a half to two years at this point. He's been there for quite a while. And he's been sitting in that dungeon because, specifically because, of his faithfulness to God and to God's word. We read of John's imprisonment earlier in, the, in Luke, in chapter 3, verse 18, and following. It says this, So with many other exhortations, he, and it's referring to John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So, so now... John was reproving Herod for Herodias. What was going on here was that Herodias was actually Herod's sister-in-law, married to his brother Philip, but Herod ended up taking her and marrying her himself. And so John boldly reproves Herod, and not only for that, but for other things. And it made Herodias so mad that she actually wanted John dead, but Herod was too scared to actually kill John, so he just shuts him up by putting him into prison. So the reward that John got for preaching the truth to Herod was to rot away in a dungeon for at least a year and a half, maybe two years at this point. And yet nothing has happened. So here's John. He's been in this dungeon and nothing. And perhaps John was wondering at this point, where is the messianic deliverance? Where is the messianic deliverance that's spoken of in Isaiah 61, verse 1, that that speaks about the, the, the Messiah setting prisoners free? And so I think disappointment and discouragement had begun to creep into John's mind. And and it was happening, I think, because he was expecting things to be different. That's evident from the questions he asked. Look at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John called two of his disciples to him and sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Obviously there's something here that John was expecting to be different than what has really turned out. Now, notice, first of all, what sparks John's question. It says that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. What things? What things are they reporting to John? Well, they're reporting the wonders and the miracles of Jesus. I mean, just prior to these verses here, we see the, the raising of the widow's son and the healing of the centurion's servant. Now, isn't it strange that the very things that were designed to confirm the word, the very things that were designed to show that the word was true and powerful, that these were the things that were a catalyst for John questioning the ministry of Jesus. Now, if you think that this passage isn't very clear that about these are the things that were being reported to him, we can go to the parallel passage in Matthew eleven two, and it says this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ... He sent word to his disciples. 
when he heard about the deeds, he sent the question. So it was the deeds themselves, themselves that were causing him to doubt who Jesus was. And that's amazing. And so what we're seeing here is nothing more than flat out discontentment with the way God has chosen to work. You see, John's expectations were of a conquering Messiah, a political revolutionary. Like all the disciples up to this point, he hadn't yet realized that all of the prophets, including his own prophetic words, were proclaiming that the Messiah was to come and suffer and die. Even the 11, after the resurrection, you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, even after the resurrection, they were expecting a political kingdom to be established. So just like them, John was expecting something quite different. John didn't understand that Jesus was saying, according to John chapter 18, verse 38, that my kingdom is not of this world. John wasn't getting that. John was expecting a different type of Messiah who would bring in a different type of kingdom, who would perhaps use a, a different type of, of tone in his speech, who would, who would have a different disposition, who would certainly produce different results. Perhaps he was expecting someone more like himself. You see, John was isolated out in the wilderness, living the hard life, eating locusts and honey. But Jesus was going from town to town, being welcomed into homes and eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. John wore strange clothes, but as far as we know, Jesus just dressed like the average man. John's disciples practiced asceticism and they, they fasted, but Jesus' disciples didn't fast according to the scriptures. John uh, simply preached the word without any signs or wonders, but Jesus' preaching was almost always accompanied with miraculous signs and wonders as he met the physical needs of those around him through those signs and wonders. John was the last of the prophets of old, bold and brash. He was probably seen as over the top and even offensive. That's why he got thrown into jail. Remember him saying, you brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Luke chapter 3, verse 7. But Jesus was generally much more meek and mild. Now that doesn't mean Jesus didn't have some harsh words, especially for the Pharisees. He called them brood of vipers as well. But in a general way, we see Jesus' ministry much more that he was much more meek and mild, welcoming children, allowing harlots to wash his feet with their hair, giving tender warnings to, to headstrong disciples like uh, Peter and James and John. And Jesus says things like this in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So John's ministry was, was quite different than Jesus's. Matter of fact, Jesus even highlights that fact Later on in this passage, look at verse 31. Take your eyes down to verse 31 and you'll see what Jesus says here. He says, to what then shall I compare the, the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now that is drawing the distinction there between John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus is represented there by the, the flute and the dancing and, and John is represented by the dirge and, and the weeping. And then he goes on, verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
So both John and Jesus were rejected by the people, but they were rejected to a certain measure for different reasons. They were vastly different in their ministry. And I think John is greatly distressed here because Jesus isn't carrying out the the messianic ministry the way perhaps he would want him to. The way he would have done it in his mind. Matter of fact, I think in John's mind, he thinks that Jesus isn't even fulfilling what John himself had said about Jesus. Even though Jesus is fulfilling it, John's not seeing it. And so here's some things that John said in Luke chapter 3 verse 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then in Matthew 3.10, we read this. Even now, this is John the Baptist's words about Jesus. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John's eschatology, his eschatological framework was such that he was expecting all these things immediately. He was expecting them right then, right there. Where's the fire, Jesus? Where's the axe? Where's the winnowing fork? Yes, the miracles and the healings and all that's nice, but where's the wrath? Is this what I was preparing the way for? Are you, are you sure you're him? Because of his misplaced expectations, he was missing the full picture of Jesus' messianic role. His misplaced expectations were breeding discontentment and disappointment within his heart. Discontentment with the way God had chosen to work. So how about you, friend? Are you wondering this morning where God's justice is in this world we live in? Are you wondering where the retribution is, where the punishment is for those who, who hate God? Are you increasingly frustrated with God's patience? Or are you complaining along with Jeremiah, Jeremiah 12, verse 1? Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Oh, friends, disciples of Jesus Christ... I think we're missing the lesson. I think we're missing the lesson that even James and John, the disciples of Jesus, missed. Do you remember in Luke chapter 9 that um, this, well, we'll, actually we'll get there eventually. So I'm saying do you remember it from your own reading because our our series hasn't gotten there yet. But in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 to proclaim the gospel with power and with authority over demons and and, and power to heal diseases. And then he tells them in in verse 5 of Luke chapter 9, how, that they are, how they're to handle rejection by evil men. In verse 5 it says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Pretty simple instructions. Okay, and the shaking off of dust was symbolic, a symbolic gesture showing that, that God was done with them. To dust you go now. But that's it. You shake off the dust and go your way. Nothing more. But then later in that chapter... Way down in verse 54, okay, and following, when they're going through Samaria and they're rejected by a Samaritan village, James and John ask this question, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's almost like they didn't, did you not hear the whole thing about the shaking off of the dust and leaving it in God's hands? And here they are saying, God, you want us just to call fire down, boom, boom. Let's nuke them, Jesus. Come on. Let's nuke those Samaritans. 
And Jesus says in verse 55 of Luke chapter 9, he turned and he didn't just calm down. He rebuked them. He rebuked them. They didn't get it. Wrath was coming, yes. But not the type of wrath that they were expecting. You see, the wrath that came in the first coming of Jesus was wrath that fell solely on him. And the wrath that's coming at the second coming is a wrath that will consume all those who are not found in him. And they didn't get it. John didn't get it. His first coming was to absorb God's wrath for God's people and to give life to God's people on the cross. And that that message of the cross was to be taken far and wide. Yes, the winnowing fork, the axe, the fire, it is in Jesus' hands. And it is still coming, but not yet. 2 Peter 3, verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth And the works that are done on on it will be exposed. Unbeliever in the room this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, unbeliever this morning, that patience is meant for you. Oh, friend, come to Jesus this morning. Do not hesitate, for we do not know how much longer that God will hold back the wrath that is due you. I do not say that to manipulate you or to scare you, but to simply warn you. Hear the harsh words of John. Hear the harsh words of Jesus, even, so that you might run, run to Jesus, run to his gentle arms. But perhaps the greater danger in our generation, in the generation of the church that we live in, especially in America, you see, the the, the greater temptation for us is the opposite expectation. The air we breathe in the current evangelical subculture is one that actually refuses to accept or even see the wrath of God at all. It accepts Jesus as meek and mild, but interprets Jesus as some sort of social activist, some sort of life coach, some sort of best buddy. But it refuses to see that he is coming back with his winnowing fork and that he will by no means clear the guilty. And so the misplaced expectations in our culture is probably the opposite of what John the Baptist had. Misplaced expectations lead to disappointment and discontentment with who Jesus is and what he is doing. But more than that, misplaced expectations can lead to despair and doubt within the hearts of God's people. We see that in John's question here. And 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 the reason it's mentioned twice here in the passage is to show, number one, that it was coming from John but also to draw emphasis to the question itself. John asked here in verse 19 and then repeated in verse 20, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's got to be a depressing place for John the Baptist to be. He's in a place of despair. He's in a place of tremendous doubt. And I think if we're honest, we've been there with John. We've sat in that dungeon with him. No, not Herod's dungeon, but the dungeon of despair, the dungeon of doubt. How many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress in the room here? Anybody? 
good. Lots of Pilgrim's Progress readers out there. One of the most vivid scenes from the Pilgrim's Progress that I remember as a child when I read it was the scene where uh, Christian and his fellow traveler, Hopeful, they, they foolishly depart from the way. They depart from the road that's going to the celestial city. Well, they depart for what seems like an, an easier and more rewarding road. But soon they realize their mistake. They begin their journey back to the way. But on their journey back, they decide to rest and to sleep one night on the grounds of a castle. And it turns out that the name of the castle was the Doubting Castle. And it was owned by a giant named Despair. So they're captured and they're put into the castle's dark and nasty dungeon. And from Wednesday until Saturday at midnight, they're beaten and they're taunted and they suffer terribly. And that's where John is here. John is not only in Herod's dungeon, he was in the giant named Despair's dungeon. He wasn't only in Herod's castle, he was in the Doubting Castle. But doubt doesn't equal unbelief. Let me... Let me try to clarify that. Doubt does not necessarily equal unbelief. Believers often wander from the way and become imprisoned with doubt without falling away from grace. So John asks, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the the Messiah? Are you the long-awaited servant? Are Are you the one who was to come? Are you the consolation of Israel? Are you he? But doubt has had a blinding effect on John, and doubt has a blinding effect on us as well. It keeps us from seeing what we already know. It keeps us from clinging to what is already in our hearts and in our minds. John knew the answer to this question. (laughs) When John asked the question, he actually knows the answer to the question. You see, even though John's parents, due to their old age when he was born, remember John's parents were very old when he was born, Even though they probably died when he was young, surely he had heard Zechariah, his father, speak about the appearance of the angel that was recorded in Luke chapter 1, verse 11, who had told him about John and and told him that John would go before the Messiah in spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Surely he had heard his dad talk about that. There's no doubt he had heard that. And surely as Elizabeth, John's mother, had had told him about the time her cousin Mary visited and how John had leapt in the womb with joy, which led her to prophetically call Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 43, the mother of my Lord. And surely Zechariah recounted over and over to little John how the Holy Spirit had opened up his mouth after he went through a season of doubt, had opened up his mouth to prophetically prophesy words from Luke chapter 1 verses 68 through 79 that were clearly messianic prophecies about who this Jesus was to be and who John was to prepare the way for. Surely he had had all these things taught to him. But John didn't have to solely uh, rely on what his parents had told him for John himself had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. He had baptized Jesus and he had subsequently given this testimony in John chapter 1 Verse 32, he said this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This was John's testimony a year and a half earlier. 
John had recognized that he was unworthy to even untie the sandals of the Messiah, much less baptize him. And what's more, God's Spirit had prophetically uttered through John what the Messiah's mission was to be when he said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew what the Messianic mission was. John should have known that lambs are weak, lambs are meek, lambs are born to die. He should have known that before the Messiah's lion work could be carried out, his lamb work must be accomplished. John should have known all these things. But doubt and despair had taken over. John had had been ready to decrease so that Christ might increase in John chapter 3, verse 30. But his decrease was perhaps more than what he expected. And Jesus' increase was perhaps not quite what he expected. Doubt and despair had taken over. Those things overtook other people in the scriptures as well. Remember Elijah in 1 Kings 19? After this wonderful victory over the, the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, here's Elijah. He has this great victory. And next thing you know, he's running away. He's, he's running away. He's in the dungeon of the doubting castle as he runs away from evil Jezebel. Or remember Job, thanks to the miserable counsel of his quote-unquote friends and, and due to his own limited understanding of God's ways, he found himself throwing a pity party over in the corner of the dungeon. David wrote some of his psalms from that dungeon. Psalm 73 recounts Asaph's visit and subsequent escape from that dungeon. Jeremiah, as we've already seen, made multiple visits to the dungeon. And how about Jesus' disciples? Thomas refused to leave Doubting Castle until he could see and touch the wounds on Jesus. And Peter, surely Peter had been captured by the giant named Despair after his denial of Jesus. Though he had been given a clear mission from Jesus before Jesus even died, and even after Jesus was risen, Peter thought it would be easier to go fishing in Doubting Castle than to do what Jesus had called him to do, and so he had to be restored. And restore him, our gentle Savior did. God restored all these saints, and he restores us too. And in this text here, he's about to restore John. And so we need to see how God restores him, which is the same way he restores us, okay? So here's your third point. Misplaced expectations can be defeated by deeper dependence on the surety of God's word. The way God brings us out of the dungeon is with his word, with his promises, with the truth. Let me, let me take you back to the Pilgrim's Progress here, Okay? Christian and hopeful didn't remain in the dungeon. They got out, okay? John Bunyan writes that on midnight on Saturday, as they sat there wounded and depressed, Christian and hopeful began to pray, and they continued in prayer through the night. And then we read that they escaped. It says this. This is now quoting from the um, Pilgrim's Progress. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in passionate speech, What a fool I am, thus to lie in stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. 
I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then Hopeful said, that's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon's door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease, and Christian and Hopeful both came out. I love the Pilgrim's Progress. Do you see what Bunyan is teaching us through this very simple children's story? The key to escaping the dungeon of the Doubting Castle is a key called promise. Capital K, capital P. Promise. God's promises. God's word. God's truth. So let us be like Christian and hopeful. Christian had God's word, God's promises tucked away in his bosom, meaning his heart. Where was the pocket that kept the key? It was right here on Christian. And it's right here on us too. We are to have God's word stored away in our heart. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, John needed greater trust in and submission to God's word, to God's promises. Again in Psalm 119, verse 161 this time, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. What's the key to dealing with being thrown into Doubting Castle and the Dungeon of Despair? The key is to cling on to God's promises. And so we see here that Jesus takes John the Baptist back to the Word by quoting several passages from the prophet Isaiah. And so in verse 22 here, if you look at your text, Verse 22, this is like an Isaiah mashup here. These are several texts from Isaiah that Jesus puts all together. So he says in verse 22, he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now in these words, Jesus is quoting portions of Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, Isaiah 29, verse 18. Isaiah 26, verse 19, and then Isaiah 61, verse 1. All of those are messianic passages that speak about what the Messiah was going to be doing when he came. Jesus is showing John from the Old Testament what John already knew. But Jesus is also strategically leaving out portions of those Old Testament texts. He's strategically leaving out some of those passages that deal with judgment. Why is he doing that? Why is Jesus just mentioning the healings and not mentioning the judgment? Is Jesus saying that, ju- that judgment, the judgment that John had been expecting wasn't going to happen? No, it's just not happening yet. What Jesus wants for John is to have immovable confidence in God's word so that if God is faithful to do these other things that he has promised in his word, the healings, the, the blind seeing, if he's faithful to do these other things in his word, fear not, John. God will one day bring judgment and justice and freedom for his people. But for now, simply trust and believe and rejoice in what God is doing. Rest in that, John. See, can't you rejoice? He heard these things that Jesus had done and he couldn't even be happy about those things. There's, there's blind people walking around. I mean, imagine John's disciples having to get to Jesus. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, sir, would you please pick up your mat? Uh, yeah, excuse all right, would you quit singing now that you were once mute? And just, excuse, uh, excuse me, Jesus, um, we need, 
I mean, the whole image here is you're having to ignore the glorious things that Jesus is already doing that he has promised in the word in order to get to the part that you think he's not doing the way he should. And that's what's happening here. And Jesus is showing from the scriptures, John, just rest in me. Just trust in me and rejoice in what's happening here. And so we see here that John's doubt had blinded him from seeing the fuller promises of God's word. We too often narrowly zoom in sometimes on what we prefer to see from God's word while failing to see the fuller context, failing to see a more comprehensive view of God's story. So Jesus wants to open up John's eyes, reorient all that he's experiencing through the lens of the word. I want you to look closely at what Jesus is doing here again. Because at first glance, you might think that Jesus' answer to John is totally unsatisfactory. I mean, John already knew all that Jesus says in his response. He already knew all those things. I mean, we read in verse 18 that John's disciples reported all these things to John. What things? These miracles, okay? Including the raising of the, of the widow's son and, and also the centurion's servant being healed. All these things have been reported to John. So Jesus answers them by simply reinforcing what John already knew. John already knew that Jesus was doing miracles, and he asked the question, and Jesus says, hey, I'm doing miracles. On top of that, in verse 21, as John's disciples are coming to Jesus, Jesus makes sure that they know these things by, it says here in verse 21, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. I mean, as they're talking to Jesus, there's lame people sitting up all of a sudden and walking away. There's blind people going, woohoo, I'm seeing stuff now. All this is happening as they're asking the question to Jesus. So, so I want you to see what's happening. I want you to see the connection between verse 18, verse 21, and then Jesus' response to verse 22. Okay? In, in 18, John knows of the signs and wonders. And then in verse 21, those signs and wonders are happening as the disciples are asking the very question that, that John sent them to ask. And then in verse 22, Jesus tells them to go to John and tell them that they've seen these signs and wonders. So at first glance, you're thinking, well, Jesus' response is inadequate. Or we might assume that John's response would be, well, duh, you already told me all that. Now, I don't think that was John's response, and here's why. What Jesus is doing is helping John see that all that he had already seen and heard, all that had already been reported to him, was exactly what was supposed to be happening. It was exactly what God's word had promised. By taking John back to the word, Jesus is showing John that God was indeed at work and that he, Jesus, was indeed the Messiah. Jesus is helping John see life and see his circumstances through a biblical lens. He is reminding John that all that is happening is consistent. With God's word. So he doesn't have to show John new things or tell John new things. He just has to say, hey, John, here are the things you've been seeing, things you've already heard about. Let me put those in a biblical lens for you. Let me, let me give you a little Isaiah mashup here to help you see all these things better. He is showing John, he is showing John the key, the key that's already in his bosom. John the Baptist knew the prophet Isaiah well, had it memorized, I'm sure. 
Jesus is showing him the key. And no, John did not walk out of Herod's castle that day. Matter of fact, John would eventually lose his head. But I think he did walk out of Doubting Castle that day and out of giant despair's grasp. I think John had stumbled a bit, but he had not fallen. Life and misplaced expectations had tripped him up, but ultimately he would not plunge into unbelief. I think John, after the report that he gets from his disciples, due to the fact that Jesus had taken him back to the Word, I think that then John looked at Isaiah 61, verse 1 differently. He had a whole new light on these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a messianic passage about the Spirit of God, about Jesus, his messianic mission. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus was doing all of these things in this passage in his timing. Good news was being preached. Broken hearts were being healed. And the liberty that he was proclaiming and the prisons that he was opening, that liberty was a greater liberty than being free from Herod's castle. And that freedom, those prisons that that people were being broken out of were greater prisons than Herod's prison. God was at work in deeper and greater ways than John had ever expected. And so, yes, the day of vengeance was to come, but now is the era of comforting those who mourn and helping, through the gospel, break people out of the prison of their own sin. So Jesus ends his word to John by giving him an encouraging beatitude. It's a mild rebuke, but really it's an encouragement in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus, again, is very gentle. He could have scolded John. I think we probably would have. Think about how hurtful this must have been to Jesus. And this had to be very hurtful. I mean, Jesus, this is the man who had prepared the way, the one who should have known better, his own cousin, his partner in ministry, doubting him. But Jesus is gentle. Matter of fact, Jesus will, in the subsequent verses, praise John and John's ministry. So Jesus is patient and gentle, and he gives John a direct but merciful beatitude. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Literally, the word offended carries the idea of stumbling or tripping. Jesus is probably alluding to the stumbling stone passage of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. It's as if he's saying, John, you are blessed, my friend. You are happy, my friend, if you don't trip over me due to your misplaced expectations. Hang in there. Trust in me. Trust in my word. So To conclude this morning, to all of you in here, friends, you are blessed if you do not trip over Jesus due to your misplaced expectations. Let us praise Jesus that it says in 2 Timothy 8 verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Perhaps you were expecting the Christian walk to be easy. Maybe you're you're an immature Christian here this morning. You're expecting the Christian walk to be easy. And now hardship has come upon you. And you're sitting in Doubting Castle's dungeon. But let me tell you what the key in your bosom says. It says in James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Perhaps our American materialistic culture has you comparing your life to the Joneses. So that every time you click on Facebook, you feel like that giant despair is on your heels. So, so pull out the key in your bosom this morning. And Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hold on to those keys, friend. Use them to unlock the doors. Perhaps a habitual sin is dragging you off the way. You feel like it's every day. It's dragging you off of the way, so you wonder if indeed this giant is going to win. The key in your bosom says this, Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And there are thousands of other doors into Doubting Castle, friends. But there are more promises that God has given you to get you out. So let us all, like the disciples in Luke chapter 17, verse 9, approach Jesus and simply say, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Or let us be like the the father, the desperate father who upon hearing Jesus say in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, all things are possible for the one who believes. He cried out to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Let us be like these people. And let us, as Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Don't let us hold fast our confession because you can do it. Let us hold fast our confession because he is faithful. He is faithful. So Christian, this morning you have those promises available to you, but unbeliever, you do not. There is no key for you. That giant has hold of you and he will not let you go. You must come to Christ. In order to have the key, you must trust in the one who is the word. You must turn from your sin. You must put your faith, your hope, your rest in Christ Jesus alone. Who was indeed the one who came. So do not look for another. Jesus was the one who came. John the Baptist knew it even though he asked the question. He was the one who came, so don't go looking for another. There is only one. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're all... In this room, those who are believers, I think every single one of us have made our share of journeys off of the way and into Doubting Castle. Time isn't sufficient on a Sunday morning to even go through the list of doubts and despairs that your people often fall into. But God, whatever it might be this morning, whatever doubts and fears and despairs are represented in this room here this morning, I pray that each and every one of us, as we go from this place today, will get on our knees and pray, just as, just as Christian and hopeful did. 
on at midnight, when the clock switched from Saturday to Sunday, they were praying all night long. And what did that prayer do? It brought their minds and their attention to the word. And they remembered. They remembered your promises. So God, my prayer this morning is that for all of us in here who have, who have set aside your promises because we're too worried about the dungeon we find ourselves in, that first we would get on our knees in prayer and beg you to, to bring us back to where we should be and bring us back to your word. And then, Lord, I pray that we would get in your word and cling to your promises and believe. And as we struggle to believe, Lord, help us to keep on praying and asking for you to help us in our unbelief. So God, we pray that you do these things in us. Jesus, we praise your holy name this morning that you did come. You were the one who came. There was not another. And that actually before the winnowing fork and before the ax could be laid bare, before the fire could come, upon your people, upon those who claimed to be your people, and upon all humanity because of their sin, it fell on you first so that there could be a way, so that there could be a door, so that there could be an ark that would protect us in the midst of the judgment that is to come. So God, we pray, Jesus, we praise your holy name for what you have accomplished let us not forget, if we find ourselves in you, then no dungeon and no giant has any claim on us. And so help us to find our rest in you. And Holy Spirit, I beg you, Holy Spirit, to apply these truths to our heart and send us out. Send us out as people who are unwavering in our hope and unwavering in our belief. And unashamedly teaching people that Jesus is the one. The one who came and there is no other. So Holy Spirit, do your work. Jesus, exalt yourself through the Holy Spirit. And Father, we submit to you, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.